This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Another day, another ballpark. Kevin Hallinan loved his job, but the newly minted head of security for Major League Baseball had to admit it was getting a bit monotonous. On the surface, so many of these stadiums had their own mystique. From the green monster at Boston's Fenway Park to the ivy-covered brick outfield wall at Chicago's Wrigley Field, each place had its own quirks, its own personality. But underground, they were all the same. The long concrete tunnels, the bustle of activity, everyone doing his or her part to make sure the game going on above them went off without a hitch. But there was another side to what was happening, a darker side. When he first started touring the ballparks, Hallinan was surprised at how easy it was to gain entry into players' clubhouses. They were packed with all sorts of characters, none of whom had any form of security clearance. That included the vast entourage of slime balls that accompanied Pete Rose everywhere he went. They were big guys with bulging muscles, slicked back hair, and pagers clipped to their belts. Hallinan knew the type from his days in the NYPD. He could spot bookies from a mile away. Hallinan had heard the rumors that Pete Rose was a profligate gambler, and once he saw the kind of people Pete surrounded himself with, he began to suspect the whispers were true. However, this wasn't some scrub or journeyman outfielder. This was Pete Rose, the hit king. It was only a matter of time until he was enshrined into the Hall of Fame. But if Hallinan's suspicions proved to be correct, it didn't matter how influential Pete was. If it turned out Pete's gambling habits had spread to baseball, he would be in violation of one of the MLB's most ironclad rules. Anyone who bet on a major league baseball game would be banned from the sport forever. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Pete Rose, Major League Baseball's all-time leader in hits, as well as one of only three living people currently on the MLB's ineligible list. 
Last week, we traced Pete's incredible career as he went from unheralded prospect to legendary superstar. We also examined his obsession with gambling and how his lifestyle became more problematic as his success grew. This week, we'll continue to follow Pete's quest to pass Ty Cobb's all-time record of 4,191 hits. But as his gambling habits catch the eye of the most powerful men in baseball, Pete's place amongst the greats becomes jeopardized. 94 hits. That's all 44-year-old Pete Rose needed to pass Ty Cobb's all-time hits record. And as the 1985 season approached, the newly minted Cincinnati Reds player-manager was all but guaranteed to shatter a record once considered unbreakable. That is, if his gambling problems didn't catch up with him first. Pete's return to Cincinnati also meant a return to his old gambling circles. Although he had kept up his illegal sports betting after leaving the Reds in 1979, the bookies in Cincy knew him. He was Pete freaking Rose, an icon, a legend. What's more, he was one of them. Pete may have been a celebrity, but he didn't act like some stuck-up millionaire. Take away the baseball uniform, and he was just another guy from Anderson Ferry. If he wanted to make a bet, all he had to do was ask. And Pete certainly wanted to bet. In the fall of 1984, he found out from a friend that the real action was taking place out of a local Gold's gym. But Pete was too recognizable to stroll through the doors and start placing bets himself. As we discussed last week, betting on any sports other than horse racing was illegal. If it was too obvious that Pete was breaking the law, he could risk getting arrested. However, that didn't keep him from gambling. He just had intermediaries place wages for him with a bookie named Ron Peters. By December, he was using Peters to place $2,000 bets on up to 10 football games every weekend. And as the bookie would later confess, Pete eventually started betting on baseball, too. From his bold play on the field to his extramarital affairs, Pete had always been reckless. But betting on baseball was taking it to another level. Betting on baseball had been a stain on the MLB's legacy since the so-called Black Sox 1919 scandal, in which members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of purposely throwing the World Series. The Black Sox scandal violated one of the most sacred tenets of the sport, that the most deserving team would emerge victorious. To restore the public's faith in the league, Rule 21, Section D, was created in 1927. According to this stipulation, if any employee of a Major League Baseball team was caught betting on baseball games, they would be placed on the permanent ineligible list. That meant they would be barred from participating in any official MLB events for the rest of their life. If Pete got caught betting on baseball, he wouldn't be able to continue his quest to break Ty Cobb's record. He'd be forced to step down from his position as the Reds' manager. He wouldn't even be able to enter a stadium unless he bought a ticket like everyone else. But for Pete to be found in violation of Rule 21, he would have to get caught betting on baseball. And there were a few factors making such a thing extremely unlikely. First, the very nature of underground betting made it hard to trace any wagers back to Pete. In addition to relying on cash exchanges, bookies also made sure to refer to people using code names. For instance, Pete's moniker was the number 14. It wasn't particularly subtle. He wore it on his back every time he took to the field but it still kept his name from being uttered aloud. Second, unless a police officer went undercover, exposed a bookmaker, and convinced them to out their clients, there was no real way to catch Pete red-handed. And even then, with so little in the way of physical evidence, 
it would be hard to actually prove Pete had made the bets, especially if he used someone as an intermediary to place bets for him. But all these roadblocks were useless if Pete didn't keep his mouth shut about what he was doing. All it would take to bring him down was Pete trusting his secret with the wrong person. As it turned out, that person was his own mother, Laverne. Apparently, Pete discussed his gambling with Laverne. However, he neglected to mention that she should keep it a secret. Unbeknownst to Laverne, she was sitting on a powder keg that could destroy her son's career. And when a Cincinnati Inquirer journalist named John Erardi came calling, she inadvertently let it blow up. Ahead of the 1985 season, Erardi visited Laverne to do some background research for his upcoming book, chronicling Pete's attempt to break Ty Cobb's hit record. As they chatted, Laverne let slip that Pete had lost a lot of money when he bet on the San Diego Padres to win in the 84 World Series against the Detroit Tigers. Although Arardi had just moved to the sports division from Metro, he was pretty sure that it was against the MLB's rules for Pete to bet on baseball. If he decided to dig any deeper, he could probably find out enough to get Pete placed on the ineligible list. But Irardi stayed quiet. Betting on baseball was considered a high crime against the sport. At the same time, Pete was only 94 hits away from passing Cobb. If Irardi exposed the hometown hero when he was so close to breaking the record, the journalist would probably get run out of town. For the moment, Pete's secret was safe. As the 1985 season dawned, all anybody in Cincinnati could talk about was when Pete would break the record. It didn't matter that the man known as Charlie Hustle was old and slow. The Reds faithful knew he'd deliver. Come hell or high water, he always delivered. Even at 44 years old, Pete certainly seemed up to the task. Even though his body couldn't take the grind of playing almost every day, he got in the lineup enough to consistently rack up hits throughout the spring and summer. By the time the calendar hit September, he was within striking range of Cobb's record. By September 8th, Pete was at 4,189 hits, only two hits away from Cobb. It was the last of a six-game road trip, and much to the delight of Reds fans back in Cincinnati, the Chicago Cubs were planning on playing a left-handed pitcher. One of Pete's rules when he returned to the Reds was that he would never play against lefties. Even as a switch hitter, they gave him too much trouble. Despite the fact that the record was in his sights, he planned to honor that rule. He wouldn't bat again until the Reds came home it was all but assured that Pete Rose would become the new hit king in front of the Cincinnati faithful. However, fate had other plans. The morning of the game, Pete found out that the pitcher the Cubs were planning on playing got injured. Instead, the right-handed pitcher Reggie Patterson would be taking the mound. When Pete heard the news, he practically started salivating. He had scored a single off Patterson only two days earlier. Although he had hoped to break Cobb's record while at home, he couldn't risk not playing. At his age, every game counted. So, he put himself into the lineup. In his first at bat, Pete hammered another single off of Patterson. He was one hit away from matching Ty Cobb's 57-year-old record of 4,191 hits. With more than 28,000 fans looking on and countless more tuned in on their TVs and radios, Pete came up to bat again in the fifth inning. As he stepped up to the plate, the normally hostile Chicago crowd rose to its feet and cheered. It didn't matter that Pete had given them so much heartbreak over the years. They wanted to witness history. But pitcher Reggie Patterson didn't want to be a footnote in Pete's story. 
On his first pitch, Patterson threw a heat-seeking missile straight into the catcher's mitt. Strike one. The second pitch also evaded Pete's bat. Strike two. The crowd held its breath as Patterson wound up for the third time. The pitch hit the dirt. Ball one. The next two were similarly wild. All of a sudden, the count was full at three and two. The crowd knew the significance of the next pitch. They turned on their own player, booing Patterson as he readied to throw. Patterson's final pitch was a screwball, meaning it moved down and in towards Pete. It was one of the most challenging pitches to hit in baseball, but not for Pete. He perfectly read Patterson's subtle wrist movements that gave the pitch away and smacked the ball into right field. When Pete arrived at first base, the crowd went wild. Ty Cobb was no longer alone on the mountaintop where he had stood since 1928. The question now was whether they'd get to see Pete climb past him. Even though the Reds' owner had personally called him in the dugout to beg Pete to save the record for a home game, he refused to call it quits. Whether it was in baseball or gambling, Pete only knew one speed, full throttle. Despite the pressure from his boss, he went up to bat two more times. While he didn't end up getting the record-breaking hit, it wasn't for a lack of trying. After the game, the press lauded Pete for his unbending integrity, just as much as they did for tying the hits record. Here was a man who refused to put his own interests ahead of the game of baseball. He was a shining example to the sport, a man worthy of his place amongst the greats. Little did they know, he was also committing a cardinal sin against the game of baseball. But for the moment, all anyone knew was that Pete needed just one more hit to become the one and only hit king. Three days later, on September 11th, 1985, he finally did it. It was a picture-perfect late summer evening. Nearly 50,000 rabid fans had come to the stadium to see one thing and one thing only, to see Pete Rose break Ty Cobb's record. They got their chance when Pete came to the plate in the first inning. Facing San Diego Padres pitcher Eric Chow, Pete Rose easily knocked a ball into left center field. The standing ovation from the crowd lasted for nearly 10 minutes. His teammates mobbed him. He had achieved the impossible. It had taken over two decades of averaging over 300 with elite play and unrelenting desire, but he had done it. He had passed Ty Cobb. As his teammates returned to the dugout, Pete shared a tender hug with his teenage son, Pete Rose Jr., it was a perfect moment, an enduring image that would define Pete Rose's life. Or at least it would have if he had decided to quit the game of baseball after that season. If he had decided to retire, his legacy would have been secure and nobody would have ever found out about his betting practices. But Pete loved the game too much to leave it. Even as he approached his 45th birthday, he was confident that he still had something left in the tank. Baseball was his life, and he wasn't ready to hang it up just yet. Even though Pete had secured one of the most sacred records in the sport, nothing had changed for him. That included his gambling. He was Pete Rose, a living legend. Nobody could touch him. Or so he thought. Coming up, Pete gets caught red-handed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
If you're looking for plump lips at last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all gel fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit www.juvederm.com. Now back to the story. After 44-year-old Pete Rose became the new baseball hit king in the 1985 season, he decided to come back for another year as the Cincinnati Reds player manager. He also decided to take his underground betting activities to another level. As 1985 bled into 1986, Pete's gambling activities intensified to the tune of approximately $15,000 worth of bets per day. Even with the wealth Pete had accumulated in his two-decade career, it was a lot of money. Too much money. To cover his growing debts, Pete was forced to sell off some of his most treasured memorabilia including his World Series rings and the bat he had used to break Ty Cobb's record only months before. These items represented his greatest professional triumphs, but Pete was willing to let them go as long as he could keep gambling. Even though these sales were conducted quietly with private buyers, they didn't go unnoticed within the baseball community. They were of particular interest to Kevin Hallinan, Major League Baseball's new head of security. Ahead of the 86 season, MLB Commissioner Peter Ubaroth hired Hallinan to be the league's new head of security. Ubaroth liked Hallinan's background as the commander of an FBI NYPD anti-terrorism task force. He wanted Hallinan to tighten the ship, so to speak, regarding everything under the security umbrella. That included access to the players' clubhouse. Before Hallinan took over, well, there was almost no control over who was coming and going from the clubhouse. Logistically speaking, this lack of control represented a security threat. If someone wanted to hurt one of the players, it was almost too easy to get access to them. One of the first things Hallinan did upon becoming head of security was to make sure there was someone standing guard at the clubhouse entrances to sign people in and out. By random chance, as Hallinan toured stadiums throughout the season, he frequently ended up being in town the same day as the Cincinnati Reds. In his efforts to curtail access to the players' clubhouse, Pete's entourage was particularly egregious in terms of how they seemed to have free reign over the stadium. As a former NYPD lieutenant, Hallinan knew an underground betting operation when he saw one. He had also heard about Pete's recent memorabilia sales. In Hallinan's experience, people like Pete Rose only needed that kind of cash for one reason, to cover debts. So he decided to dig a little deeper into Pete's activities. With Commissioner Ubaroth's permission, Hallinan had Joe Daly, an ex-FBI colleague who operated out of Cincinnati, put out some feelers. Through Daly, Hallinan was able to find out about the shady operations going on in the Gold's gym Pete frequented. Although he wasn't able to get any concrete proof, Daly heard a lot of whispers that Pete was betting on baseball. Hallinan decided that the best course of action would be to conduct a quiet investigation into Pete's gambling practices. The whole time Hallinan's investigation was ongoing, Pete had no idea he was under any sort of scrutiny. 
He continued to bet on baseball, including games involving the Reds. Well, he never bet for them to lose, but that didn't change the fact that he was completely violating Rule 21. Once the 1986 season ended, he decided he was finally ready to stop playing baseball. After collecting a grand total of 4,256 hits, he felt like it was time for him to transition into working solely as the Reds' manager. But even though he was no longer playing for the team, that didn't mean Pete was in the clear. Rule 21 clearly prohibited any team employee from betting on baseball games, and that included the manager. Over the next two seasons, while Pete managed the Reds, Hallinan and Daly continued their investigation. While they were still short on proof, they had heard enough rumors to suspect Pete was violating Rule 21. In February of 1989, about a month before the season was set to begin, Pete was summoned to the MLB headquarters in New York. He had no idea he was walking into an ambush. As he entered Commissioner Peter Uberoth's office, Pete was greeted by the grim faces of Uberoth, incoming baseball commissioner Bart Giamatti, and his deputy, Faye Vincent. They asked him, point blank, if he had bet on baseball. Pete admitted that he bet on other sports, but categorically denied that he had ever wagered on a baseball game. He insisted he would never be that stupid. The three men had every reason to not push the matter any further. Although Hallinan had heard rumors that Pete had bet on baseball, he didn't have any real proof. And that was good enough for Ubroth and Giamatti. In addition to being a steward of the game, the commissioner of baseball also answered to the owners. And that meant taking the bottom line into consideration. Pete was one of the greatest players of all time, his relentless drive and passion for the game made him one of the sport's most popular stars. Financially, it made no sense to cast him out of the league. But Deputy Commissioner Faye Vincent was a man of unbending principle. He felt that their responsibility was to make sure the integrity of baseball superseded any financial obligations. If Pete was betting on baseball games, that meant he was spitting in the face of one of America's noblest institutions. They couldn't go easy on him just because of his status. Vincent's passionate case of integrity over money won over Uberoth and Giamatti. They resolved to open an independent investigation into Pete's gambling habits. At Vincent's recommendation, Attorney John Dowd was chosen to conduct the inquiry. As a no-nonsense attorney with an aptitude for big cases, Dowd was the perfect choice. He'd leave no stone unturned in his pursuit of the truth. The investigation officially began on March 6, 1989. Upon arriving in Cincinnati, Dowd was certain he had a long road ahead of him. Not only was Pete a local hero, but getting his associates to reveal their own roles in the enterprise was a big ask. Underground rings ran on loyalty and trust. If these men were willing to betray Pete Rose of all people, well, the rest of their clients might leave them. However, nearly the moment Dowd set foot in the city, the men involved in Pete's betting circles ratted him out. During Kevin Hallinan's more discreet questioning, Nobody had turned on Pete, but by March 1989, he owed too much money to too many people. If they weren't going to get their money back, they were willing to get payback in a different way. The first one to betray Pete was Paul Jansen, a steroid dealer at Gold's Gym who had placed bets on Pete's behalf in the spring of 1987. Jansen was so eager to help Pete make wagers with the bookie Ron Peters, that he even paid around $40,000 out of his own pocket to do it. The expectation was that Pete would pay him back later. But Pete had racked up another $34,000 in gambling debts with Ron Peters. At the end of the summer of 87, Peters refused to pay out $40,000 Pete had won. 
claiming it as payment with interest for the money Pete still owed him. That refusal had an unintended ripple effect on Paul Jansen, who was still in the hole for the money he had used on Pete's behalf. But Pete reportedly refused to fully repay him. This betrayal stung Jansen to his core. When Jansen heard about John Dowd's investigation, he was all too happy to turn on his friend. In addition to his own notebook, in which he meticulously tracked every wager he placed, Jansen provided what he claimed were Pete's own records of the bets. Dowd had them analyzed by a handwriting expert who concluded that Jansen was telling the truth. After Jansen came forward, the bookie Ron Peters also decided to help with Dowd's investigation. At the time of the investigation, Peters was awaiting sentencing on cocaine trafficking and falsifying tax returns. Even though the Dowd investigation was independent of the Justice Department, perhaps he thought he might get a lighter sentence for cooperating. In addition to providing the copy of the $34,000 check Pete had given him, Peters turned over his own betting records. These records confirmed the bets that Pete had placed via Jansen and that many of these wagers were on baseball games. As news from the investigation leaked to the press, Pete vehemently denied he had ever bet on baseball games. Even with over a dozen witnesses saying otherwise, and the evidence to back them up, Pete refused to admit what he had done. When the 1989 season began in early April, Pete Rose had gone from beloved hero to despised villain. With the exception of Pete's loyal home fans, everywhere the Reds went, Pete found himself relentlessly booed. It didn't matter how many records he had, he had betrayed the game itself. Once Dowd had gathered his evidence, he called Pete in for a deposition in late April 1989. With so much publicity surrounding the investigation, they had to find a quiet, discreet place to meet away from the scrutiny of the press. Instead of meeting in Pete's office or at the New York MLB headquarters, Pete Rose and John Dowd sat down across from each other in the school cafeteria of a small Catholic school in Cincinnati. Over the course of two days of questioning, Pete steadfastly denied that he had ever bet on a Major League Baseball game. Even when Dowd showed Pete the betting slips, journal entries, and phone records that served as evidence against him, even when he played a phone call Paul Jansen had recorded with another one of Pete's associates about the debts he owed, Pete still refused to yield. But Dowd didn't need Pete to admit to betting on baseball. He had all the evidence he required. And nothing Pete said contradicted the proof Dowd had collected. He was ready to move forward with his findings. Only two months after beginning his investigation, on May 9, 1989, Dowd provided the newly minted MLB commissioner Bart Giamatti with his report. It spanned roughly 225 pages, along with nine volumes of unedited supporting evidence. Dowd had shown that Pete had clearly bet on Major League Baseball games. Now, it was up to Giamatti to punish him. Although Giamatti was a fan of Pete as a player, he didn't like how Pete was refusing to own up to what he had done. If Pete had admitted his mistakes, maybe there would have been room for mercy. But if he wasn't going to come clean, he would be subjected to the full brunt of Rule 21, permanent ineligibility. To determine Pete's fate, Giamatti set a hearing for May 25, 1989. However, Pete wasn't going to take his punishment lying down. If he managed to escape a permanent ban, he could emerge with his reputation relatively intact. According to an informal poll conducted by the Los Angeles Times, Many of the journalists who voted on Hall of Fame inductions would still put him on their ballots, just as long as he never bet against the Reds. He and his legal team scrambled for any way to fight against Commissioner Giamatti's wrath. 
and managed to get the hearing pushed back a month. Even with the extra time, Pete had no real recourse. He wouldn't admit it, but the fact was that he had bet on baseball. There was simply no disputing the evidence against him. So, instead of going after the evidence, Pete decided to go after Giamatti, claiming the commissioner was never going to give him a fair hearing. Pete filed the lawsuit in Cincinnati, where a friendly judge agreed to enact a temporary restraining order to delay the hearing. But Pete wasn't the only one who could make moves within the legal system. In response to the temporary hold, Giamatti had the case moved to a federal court outside the local jurisdiction of Cincinnati. Realizing his chance of having a sympathetic judge was much lower in this new setting, Pete agreed to enter settlement discussions in early August 1989. The negotiations were short. With no real leverage, all Pete could get out of Giamatti was that he didn't have to admit or deny to betting on baseball. It was a meaningless concession. He was still found in violation of Rule 21. The agreement was signed the morning of August 23, 1989. Pete Rose, one of the best to ever swing the bat, was officially out of the game of baseball. Coming up, Pete finds life without baseball even more difficult than he had imagined. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. You can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. And now back to the story. On August 23rd, 1989, 48-year-old Pete Rose was placed on Major League Baseball's permanent ineligible list for betting on baseball games while he was employed by the Cincinnati Reds. However, there was still a sliver of hope for Pete. Per the league's rules, he'd be allowed to reapply for reinstatement in one year's time. It was an option he fully planned on exercising. Unfortunately, there were more repercussions from his gambling habits still to come. With Pete's betting woes firmly in the national spotlight, the IRS decided to take a closer look at his finances. On April 20th, 1990, Pete pleaded guilty to two counts of filing fraudulent tax returns from 1984 to 1987. He had failed to disclose close to $350,000 in autograph and memorabilia sales, the equivalent of nearly $750,000 in today's money. Most likely, that money had gone to paying off his significant gambling debts. The judge sentenced him to five months in a minimum security prison, with a further three months in a halfway house upon his release. Additionally, he slapped Pete with a $50,000 fine and 1,000 hours of community service. In the end, it was a fairly light punishment. If Pete had been punished to the full extent of the law, he could have faced up to six years in prison. But in this instance, his honesty and cooperation helped him get a lighter punishment. Perhaps he had learned a lesson from his hard-headed approach to the Dowd investigation. Pete reported to the minimum security facility in Marion, Illinois on August 8, 1990. He had traded in his Reds number 14 for prisoner number 01832061. The day he was incarcerated, 
Pete was two weeks shy of being able to apply for reinstatement to the MLB. He didn't bother filing an application. Faye Vincent had assumed the role of baseball commissioner after Bart Giamatti died in September 1989. There was no way the incredibly principled commissioner would ever reinstate Pete while he was imprisoned. In an ironic twist of fate, the Reds reached the World Series while Pete was incarcerated. He wanted nothing more than to be in the dugout alongside his former players. Instead, he was forced to watch the games on TV alongside his fellow inmates. When the Reds won the championship in a clean sweep, many of Pete's former players were quick to thank their former manager. Regardless of what he had done, Pete had laid the foundations of a great team, and they would never forget it. As the other prisoners cheered and high-fived him, Pete felt a mix of pride and sadness. He would have loved to be part of the action. Pete was released from Marion on January 7, 1991. By all accounts, he had been a model inmate. Even though he had a long road ahead of him in his fight to get reinstated to the MLB, he still had something to look forward to, getting enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. The debate over whether or not Pete should be voted in had begun the moment he was found in violation of Rule 21. But Pete was confident in his chances. Overall, the selection process was extremely democratic. When it was established in 1936, its founders had a vision that the players who were chosen would reflect the sentiments of baseball fans in general. To that end, the voting process was entrusted to the Baseball Writers Association of America, or BBWAA. In order to qualify, a player must have appeared in at least 10 MLB seasons, and five years must have passed since he last played in a game. Then, if a player appeared on more than 75% of voters' ballots, he would be selected for induction. Since Pete had never played in the 1987 season, he would have been eligible to appear on ballots when voting began in late 1991. And if he was only being judged by his career achievements, he would have been a shoo-in. At the time, there was no rule against an ineligible player or manager being voted into the Hall of Fame. But three days after Pete got out of prison, a special committee created by the Hall of Fame's board of directors voted to make one. Colloquially known as the Rose Rule, this motion went against the intentions behind the Hall of Fame voting process. Yes, Pete had betrayed the game of baseball, but it wasn't up to the committee to decide whether his betting had outweighed his performance on the field. However, the BBWAA was powerless to do anything to change the rule. Unless it was amended to allow Pete to be voted in, the only way he could get inducted would be for the commissioner to revoke his ineligibility. And that wouldn't be happening anytime soon. Pete continued to steadfastly deny that he had ever bet on baseball, even though the evidence against him was staggering. Unless he made a serious attempt to right his wrongs, Pete would remain on the outside looking in. Being cast out of baseball deprived Pete of more than his eligibility within the league. It deprived him of experiencing one of the most important moments of his son's life. In September 1997, 27-year-old Pete Rose Jr. was finally called up from the minor leagues to play for the Cincinnati Reds. Although he was a talented player in his own right, Jr. lacked the same spark that made his old man so special. But Pete's signature hustle ran in the family. Despite his talent deficit, Pete Jr., who was still known in baseball circles as Petey, had refused to give up his big league dreams. And after toiling in the minor leagues for nine full years, Petey was finally getting his shot at the big show. Although his major league career lasted only 11 games, Petey could claim something his father never could. He got a hit in his first contest. And while Pete was watching from the stands and shared a hug with his son outside the player's tunnel, 
he wasn't allowed to partake in the hallowed tradition of celebrating with his son in the locker room, all because he had bet on baseball games. But with the good feelings around Petey's MLB debut, Pete decided to apply for reinstatement in late September 1997. However, Commissioner Bud Selig never even officially considered it. Pete still refused to admit to betting on baseball, and until he did, he'd never have a shot at reinstatement. Almost seven years passed, with Pete remaining steadfast in his denials. But with each passing day, his chances of getting inducted into the Hall of Fame were dwindling. The limit for eligibility was 20 years after a player's last game. For Pete, that would be in 2006. If he wanted to get reinstated and therefore regain eligibility, he would need to take drastic action. In January 2004, Pete appeared on Good Morning America and finally admitted to what everyone already knew, he had bet on baseball. And you could read all about it in his new book, My Prison Without Bars. If Pete was expecting to be praised for his admission, he would be sorely disappointed. The timing was considered extremely suspect. His revelation was seen more as a PR move than as a genuine apology. Regardless of what Pete's intentions were, his confession wasn't enough to get him reinstated. Admitting what he had done was a good first step, but he hadn't done anything to truly show he was sorry for what he had done. But as the years passed, the MLB started to loosen Pete's shackles. On the night of September 11, 2010, the league permitted the Reds to honor Pete on the field for the 25th anniversary of his record-breaking hit. After the ceremony, there was a dinner held in Pete's honor at the Hollywood Casino in nearby Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Sitting amongst his old teammates flooded with nostalgia for days gone by, something must have broken in Pete. When he took to the podium to give a speech, he broke down and cried. Looking out at the crowd of diners, Pete acknowledged that he finally realized what Bart Giamatti had meant when he told Pete he'd have to reconfigure his life if he hoped to get reinstated. He acknowledged that he had disrespected the game of baseball. Speaking to his former teammates, Rose said, I'm a hard-headed guy, but I'm a lot better guy standing here tonight. I guarantee everyone in this room, I will never disrespect you again. I love the fans, I love the game of baseball, and I love Cincinnati baseball. This time, it seemed like Pete's apology was genuine. There was no deadline for reinstatement coming up, no ulterior motive. It appeared that he truly regretted what he had done. However, Commissioner Selig never made a decision on Pete's eligibility. And despite Pete's 2010 apology, the new commissioner, Rob Manfred, didn't believe that he had shown adequate remorse or adjustment of lifestyle. He denied Pete's application. But Manfred did give the Reds permission to celebrate Pete's on-field legacy. In 2016, Pete was inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and had his famous number 14 jersey officially retired. Additionally, a statue of Pete, launching into his iconic head-first slide, was installed in front of the Red Stadium. As of 2019, Pete Rose is still on the ineligible list and remains barred from being inducted into the MLB Hall of Fame. But the controversy swirling around him continues to make headlines especially with the revelations about the rampant steroid use that plagued baseball in the 1990s and 2000s, the question of how much damage Pete did to the game has been reframed. Although notorious steroid users like Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa have not been inducted into the Hall of Fame, they are still eligible. An argument can be made that what Pete did was less detrimental to baseball than the action steroid users took to enhance themselves. 
According to Pete, he never bet against the Reds. He only bet on them to win. If so, that means he never made any decisions that would cause the Reds to lose, and there's no evidence to prove he's lying. However, that doesn't mean his betting interests didn't interfere with his duties as the Reds' manager. Although he wasn't doing anything to impact his team's chances of winning, Pete could have put his short-term goals of winning that night's bet over the long-term goals of the season. Now 78 years old, Pete claims in interviews that he is long past caring whether he makes it into the Hall of Fame or not. He's a regular presence in Cooperstown during induction weekends, gladly selling his autograph. If you ask him, he'll write, I'm sorry I bet on baseball. And maybe he truly means it. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Pete Rose, An American Dilemma by Kostya Kennedy extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Want to stream Sports Criminals on Spotify? Just open the app, tap browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedon and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy.